Welcome to episode 5 of Hysteria. Today, we are reading Each Man Kills by Victoria Glad, published in 1951. Very little is known about author Victoria Glad. Each Man Kills is by far her most popular story, published first in Weird Tales in March of 1951. Each Man Kills has been included in dozens of anthologies and vampire story collections. Today, this story is read by Charisma O'Keefe. Music provided by Laura Fisher. This story has been edited for time. Let the hysteria begin. Each Man Kills by Victoria Glad Now that it's almost over, it seems like a bad dream. But when I look at Maria's picture on my desk, I realize it couldn't have been a dream. It was only six months ago that I sat at the same desk looking at her picture, wondering what could have happened to her. It had been six weeks since there had been any word from her, and she had promised to write as soon as she arrived in Europe. Considering that my future rested in her small hands, I had every right to be apprehensive. We had grown up together, had lost our folks within a few years of each other, and had been fond of each other the way kids are apt to be. Then the change came. It seemed I loved her, and she was still just fond of me. The next thing I knew, she had signed up with a student tour destined for Central Europe, and told me that she would give me my answer when she returned. I had to be content with that, but couldn't help worrying. Maria was a strange girl withdrawn, dreamy, and soft-hearted. Knowing the section she was going to, I was inclined to be uneasy, since it is the realm of fortune-tellers and the like. It is also the birthplace of many strange legends, and Maria claimed to be strongly psychic. When she didn't write at first, I let it go that she was busy. Finally, six weeks' silent treatment aroused my curiosity. It also aroused my nasty temper, and the next thing I knew, I was on a plane bound for the continent. I found her at a little inn in Transylvania, a quaint little place that looked as if it were made of gingerbread, and was surrounded by the huge craggy Transylvania mountain range. I also found Todd Hunter. What's wrong, Maria? Why didn't you write? I asked. Her usually gay, shining brown eyes flashed angrily. Why couldn't you leave me alone? I told you not to come after me. I came here so I could think this out. For God's sakes, Bill, can't you see I wanted to think? To be by myself? But you promised to write, I persisted, wondering at this change in her. Wondered, too, at her wraith-like sliminess. Maria has been studying much too diligently, Todd said slowly. She's always tired lately. She hasn't been too well, either. Her throat bothers her. I wanted to punch his head in. For some reason, I didn't like him. Not because I sensed his rivalry. I was above that. God knows I wanted her to be happy above everything. It was just something about him that irritated me. An attitude. Not supercilious, I could have coped with that. Rather, it was a calm impetrability that seemed to speak his faith in his eventual success, regardless of any effort on my part. I don't know how to fight that sort of strategy. I look like I am, blunt and obvious. Suddenly, I didn't care if he was there. Maria, Rhea, darling, this guy's no good for you, can't you see that? What do you know about him? She looked at me, her eyes surprised and a little hurt. Then she looked at him, 
seemed to be looking through him and into herself, if you know what I mean. All I have to know, she said softly, I love him. She looked out the window. I'm going into Koenigstein Mountain to a small sanitarium for my health shortly. The doctor has told me I must go away, and Todd has suggested this place. There, Todd and I shall be married. I knew then how it felt to be on the receiving end of a monkey punch. That she had come to this decision because of my objections, I hadn't the slightest doubt. She was going to marry someone about whom she knew absolutely nothing. She was much more ill than she knew. Hunter was undoubtedly after her money. She was considerably well off. Obviously, she was once more being influenced in the wrong direction. I won't let you, I warned. Give it some time, if for nothing else than for old time's sake. How about me, Morris? Todd interrupted. You haven't asked me my feelings on the subject. I happen to love Maria dearly. Have I no say just because you're a childhood friend of hers? Childhood friend? I was her whole family for years before she had ever heard of you. I'll see you in hell before I let you marry her, I shouted. Looking back, I'm sure that if he had said anything else, I would have killed him, if Rhea hadn't come between us. That's enough, Bill Morris. I've heard all I want to from you. I'm 23, and if I choose to marry Todd, I'll do so, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now please, go. Okay, Rhea, I said. That's the way you want it. But I'm not through. If you won't protect yourself, I'll do it for you. I'd like to know more about this mysterious Mr. Todd Hunter, American, and I do wish for your own sake you do the same. I wouldn't care if you were marrying King Tut so long as you knew about him. People just don't marry strangers, not if they're smart. For God's sakes, ask him about himself. All right, Bill, she replied, smiling patiently. I'll ask him. Now do stop being childish. Okay, darling, I said sheepishly, but do me one more favor. Don't marry him until I get back. Only a little while. Give me a week. Just wait a little longer. As I closed the door, I could still feel his smile, mocking, yet a little sad. But Maria didn't wait. I was gone a week. I had walked my legs off trying to track down the elusive Mr. Hunter and discovered exactly nothing. All his landlady would tell me is that he was an American who had come to this climate for his health and that he slept late mornings. I headed straight for Rhea's flat to face the music. They were waiting for me, she and Todd. When I saw her, I wished I were dead. She lay in Todd's arms, her body a mere whisper of a body. White and cold she was, like frozen milk on a cold winter's day. They were both dead. You know how it is when at a wake someone views the deceased and says kindly, she's beautiful. And she isn't beautiful at all, just a made up lifeless handful of clay. Well, it wasn't that way this time. Their fair skins were faintly pink tinted and their blonde heads, hers ashen and his a reddish cast, gleamed brightly. And they sat so close in the sofa before the fire, his head resting in the hollow of her throat. They looked peaceful. No line marred their faces. I almost fancied I saw them breathe. And on her third finger, left hand was the ring thin platinum band. How they had died and why they found each other and death at the same time, I would probably never know. I almost ran the distance to my flat. I stumbled into my place and poured a triple scotch which I could scarcely hold. The scotch seared my throat and tasted bitter. Then I realized that it was tears. 
my tears. I, Bill Morris, who hadn't cried since my fifth birthday. I was sobbing like a baby. I didn't call the police. That would mean I'd have to go back and watch them cover that lovely body, carry it away, and submit it to untold indignities in order to ascertain the cause of death. The cleaning girl would find them in the morning and would notify the police. In the morning, I found I couldn't shake off the guilt which possessed me. Even two bottles of scotch hadn't helped me forget. I phoned Rhea's landlady and told her I had failed to reach the hunters by phone, that I was sure something was amiss. She was amused. Really, Mr. Morris, you must be mistaken. Miss Maria went out just an hour ago with her new husband. Surely you're adjusting. Why, she has never looked better. So happy. They have also left you a note. I told her I'd be right over and hopped in a cab. I began to think I was losing my mind. I had seen them both... dead. The landlady had seen them this morning... alive. When I arrived, the landlady looked at me for a long moment, taking in my rough dark blue complexion, unpressed clothes, red-rimmed eyes, then wagged a finger playfully. You are playing a joke, no? A wedding joke, maybe? Here, too, we haze newlyweds. But of course I understood. Who could help loving Miss Maria? Be of good heart, young man. For you, there will be another someday. But I talk too much. Here is your letter. I went where I would be undisturbed, to the reading room of the library on the same street as my flat. Without the saving warmth of sunlight or the fresh, clean relief of sweet-smelling air, I read. Red, inhaling the pugnant, sour smell of the scotch I had consumed during the long, sleepless night. Red, and then doubted that I had read it all. But the blue ink on the white paper forced me to acknowledge its actuality. It had been written by Hunter in a neat scholar script. Dear Morris, it began, why should I not have wanted Maria? You did. Others doubtless did. Why then should she not be mine? With her, I have known the two happiest days of my life. I want no more than that. I have no right to ask for more. Have we, any of us, a right to endless bliss on this earth? Hardly. You thought of her welfare above all. For that, I owe you some explanation. You must be patient. You must believe. And in the end, you must do as I ask. You must. It was chance that brought us together. For me, good chance. For you, possibly ill chance. For Maria, only she can say. Some three years ago, I was studying in England. The folklore of the British Isles intrigued me. I delved into the black Welsh tales, the mischievous fancies of the Irish, the English legends of the prowling werewolf, my extracurricular research consumed the better parts of my evening. My books were and always have been a part of me, and as to be expected, I overdid it. I studied too hard with too little let up. Sometimes it seemed to me that there was more truth in what I read than myth. It became somewhat of an obsession. Suddenly, one night, everything blacked out. I came to in a sanatorium. I didn't know how I got there, and when they explained it to me, I laughed. I thought they were joking. When I tried to get up to walk, I collapsed. Then I knew how bad it had been. I knew, too, I would have to go slowly. It was there I met Eve. She was beautiful. 
Not like Maria, who was like a fragile, fair, spun-sugar angel. Eve was more earthy, with skin like ivory, creamy and rich and pale. Her blue-black hair she wore long and gathered in the back. She looked about 25, but a streak of pure white ran back from each of her temples. She was the most striking woman I have ever met. I have never known anyone like her, nor have I since I saw her last. She reminded me of a sleek black cat with her large hazel eyes. I bumped into her one day on the veranda and spent every day with her after that. The doctors wanted me to take exercise, short walks and the like, and Eve went with me, struggling to keep up with me. The slightest effort tired her. She suffered from a rather nasty case of anemia. She seldom smiled. The effort was probably too much for her. I saw her really smile only once. We had been on one of our short hikes in the woods, close by the grounds. She stumbled over a twig or a branch, I'm not sure which. Suddenly, she was in my arms. So light she was, although she was almost as tall as I. Warm and pulsating, her eyes held mine almost uncanny. I have never been affected like that by a woman. Then I was kissing her. Then a sharp sting and I winced. There was the warm salt taste of blood on my lips. I never knew how it happened but she was smiling. Her full mouth parted in the strangest smile I had ever seen and those small white teeth gleamed and in her eyes which were black pupils now with the iris quite hidden was desire, or something beyond desire. I couldn't define it then. Now, I think I can. Her small pink tongue darted over her lips, tasting, seeming to savor. I was frightened for some indefiable reason. I wanted to get away from her, from the woods, from myself. I grasped her arm roughly, and we started back for the grounds. We never mentioned the episode again but we neither of us forgot. She intrigued me now more than ever. The doctors were able to satisfy my curiosity somewhat. They told me she had been a patient for some four years. Someday she was better, someday she was worse. She needed rest, much rest. Just when we became lovers, I scarcely remember. Things were happening so fast I could barely keep pace with them. There was a magnetism about Eve which compelled. I couldn't have resisted if I wanted to, and I didn't. I began to have long periods of lassitude, times when I would black out and remember nothing afterward. I would dream I was stroking a large velvety black cat, a cat with shining yellow eyes that looked at me as if they knew my every thought. I would stroke it continuously, and it would knit me playfully. Then, one night, the dream intensified. I was playing with the creature, caressing it gently, when all of a sudden, its lips drew back in a snarl, and without warning it sprang at my throat and buried its fangs deep. I thought I could feel life being drawn out of me. I screamed. The doctors told me afterwards that I was semi-conscious for days, that I had to be restrained. When I was well again, Eve came to see me. She was gentle, soothing. She held me close to her, and oh, it was good to be alive and belong to someone. I remember to this day what she wore, black velvet lounging slacks, a low-necked amber satin blouse, caught at the V by a curiously wrought antique silver pin. It was round, 
about four inches in diameter. In its center was the carved figure of a serpent coiled to strike. Its eyes were deep amber topazes, and its darting tongue was raised and set with a blood-red ruby. What an unusual pin, Eve, I said. I've never seen it before, have I? No, she replied. It belongs to the deep, dark, seldom-discussed skeleton in the Orkazi closet, Todd. You see, my great-grandmother was quite a wicked lady, to hear tell. Went in for witches' masses and the like. They say she poisoned her husband, a rather elderly and very childish man, for her lover, who she subsequently married. Together, they did away with relatives who stood in the way of their accumulating more money. This pin was the instrument of death. Her slim fingers pressed the ruby tongue and the pin opened, revealing a space large enough to secrete powder. Perhaps it was fate then that her devoted new husband tired of her, once her fortune was assured him, took a young mistress for himself, and disposed of the unfortunate wife using her own pin to perpetrate her murder. She was excommunicated by the church too, which must have made it most unpleasant for her, poor old dear. The slim shoulders straightened. But let's not discuss such unpleasant things, my dear. The important thing now is for you to get well quickly. I've missed you terribly, you know. It was then I asked her to marry me. I knew I didn't really love her, but there seemed nothing to prevent our marriage. And she had gotten under my skin. It was as elemental as that. She said she thought we should wait until I fully recovered. Don't say anything more, darling, she said. Rest your poor sore throat. She bent over me solicitously and I reached up to stroke that smooth black hair. It had a familiar feel to it that I couldn't quite place. Of course I had stroked it hundreds of times before, but it wasn't that. Then she looked straight at me, those large, glowing hazel eyes boring into mine. And I knew. Knew and disbelieved at the same time. I froze where I lay, paralyzed by my fear, unable to make a sound. So you know, she whispered. It is well, I have marked you for my own these many months. Now that you know, you will not fight. You know what I am, or at least you can guess. This pin you admired so, it was mine 300 years ago, and it will always be mine. Her lips were on mine. She had never kissed me like this. It was like the touch of hot ice, freezing, then searing, unendurable. I lay inert. I couldn't have moved if I wanted to. I could scarcely breathe. Then I felt the blood within me pounding, pulsing, beginning to answer in spite of myself. I tasted once more the warm, salty fluid on my lips. Eve's body was liquid in my arms, warm, heaty, narcotizing. Once again, I felt the agonizing dagger, sharp pain in my throat, and darkness. Have you ever wakened to a bright sunny afternoon and heard yourself pronounced dead? They spoke in low, hushed tones. How unfortunate. Young fellow, only 30, dying so far away from his homeland. This sudden anemia was most extraordinary. Fellow showed no signs of it previously. All he had needed was rest. If he had recovered, that lovely Eve or Casey may have made both of their lives happier, richer. Sad ending to what might have been an ideal. Good of her to claim the body. She said she was going to inter it in the family vault in Koenigstein Mountain in Transylvania. I heard them distinctly. I wanted to shout that I wasn't dead. I wanted to wake up from this horrible nightmare. I was as alive as they. 
I knew I had to get out of there some way to get away from Eve, who I now feared. They left to make arrangements. The lassitude crept through me without warning. I dozed in spite of myself, and I dreamed again. I was a cat, running, leaping through windows, looping over the countryside, stopping for no one. I panted with my exertions. Towns and cities flew by. I had to get someplace and quickly. Todd, she said, get up, my dear. I heard her, and I hated her. Hated her while I was drawn to her. There was a white mist before my eyes. I reached up to brush it away. It was not a mist, it was a cloth. I must wake up, I whispered hoarsely. I must, I'm going mad. There was a creaking sound and daylight descended upon me. When I saw where I was, I covered my face with my hands and sobbed. I tried to pray, but the words froze on my lips. I was sitting in a coffin in a mausoleum. I had been buried alive. What am I? I shrieked. Where am I and what have you done? I'm out of my mind. Eve's lips parted, showing the even white teeth, those slightly pointed teeth. You're quite sane, my dear, she said calmly. You are one of us now, a revenant even as I. And to live, you must feed on the living. It's not true, I shouted. All This is all a crazy nightmare, part of my illness. You're not real. Nothing is real. I'm quite real, Todd. To be trite, I am what I am, and I have accepted it calmly, as you shall in time. I have told you of my life. You have been a student of legends. Legends are often, more often than you think, reality. When one has been murdered, if one has lived a so-called wicked life, he is doomed to walk the earth, battening on the living. My fate was sealed as I lay in my coffin, but that wasn't enough. As I lay there, my pet cat, Suma, slunk into the room and leapt over me. That was double insurance of my life after death. Those whom I mark for my own must too live on. Accept it, my dear. You have no other choice. But I wouldn't. I refused to. For a while. I would not feast on the blood of the living. Something within me fought. For a time. Then the awful hunger began. The tearing pangs of hunger that ordinary food wouldn't arrest. I fought it as long as I could. I lost. First, it was small animals. It was my life or theirs. Then there was a little girl, dear little creature who might have been my own child under different circumstances. After the episode of the little girl, Eve left me. She had no further use for me. I was now competition to be shunned. I was alone once again and thoroughly miserable. I couldn't understand myself, my motives, so how could I expect someone else to understand? Goodness knows I loathed myself and what I had to do in order to live. I wished I might really die, for I was tired, so frightfully tired and sick of it all. But I knew no way to accomplish this, so I had to bear it all, fasting until my voracious, disgusting appetites got the better of me. I decided there must be some information on my kind, particularly in this area where vampire legends are so rife, so I took to haunting reading rooms. It was there I met Maria. I kept my knowledge to myself, though. I didn't want to scare Maria. She was like a flash of sunshine in a darkened room. 
she made each day worth living. For the first time, the hunger pain ceased. Ceased for one week, then two. I was certain I was cured. I felt then I had the right to tell her of my love. She was uncertain, she said. She knew she was awfully fond of me, but she was confused. I said I would wait up to and through eternity if she wished. Things went along peacefully then. We would walk for hours together, walk in complete silence and understanding. My strength seemed to be returning more day by day. One day, in our wanderings, I thoughtlessly let myself be too near my resting place. One of the locals mentioned a place of horror nearby, and Maria wanted to investigate. I had no choice. We poked amid the still fustiness of the deserted mausoleum I knew so well. She thought it odd that the door was unlocked. Then she saw the box, the gleaming copper box which Eve had so thoughtfully provided. She stroked it gently, commenting on its beauty, and before I could prevent it or divert her attention, she had lifted the heavy lid, exposing the disarranged shroud, the remains of one or two hapless small creatures, the horrible blood-stained satin lining. She screamed and dropped the lid, somehow pinching her finger. Then she was clinging to me, thoroughly frightened. What does it mean, Todd? I quieted her with the usual platitudes. Then I was kissing that poor red little finger. Without warning to myself or her, I nipped it affectionately. A warm glow spread through me. There was a taste more delightful than fine old brandy or vintage wine. And I knew irrevocably that I was not cured. No, nor should ever be. And I knew too that I wanted Maria, not just as a man longs for the woman he loves, but to drink of the fountain of her life, that warm, intoxicating fountain, greedily, joyously. She never knew what went through my mind at that moment. If I could have killed myself then, I would have, and with no compunction. But there is more to killing a reverend than that. The church knows the procedure. I hurried Maria home as fast as I could and told her I had to go away for a week on business. She believed me and said she would miss me, but I didn't go away. That night, I fought a losing battle with myself, and then and every night thereafter, I returned to her, partook of her, and slunk away, loathing myself. I knew that I must soon kill the one being I loved above all others, kill too her immortal soul, and there was nothing I could do to prevent it. She began to fade visibly when I returned in a week. She was so ill that a few steps tired her. Her appetite all but vanished. She seemed genuinely glad to see me. She was beset by nightmares, she said. Could I help her get some rest? I took her to a physician who sagely prescribed a change in climate, rest and a diet rich in blood and iron, gave her a prescription for sedatives, and called it a day. The day was approaching when she would have no more blood, when life as you know it would stop and she would become like me. Somehow, I couldn't take her with me without some warning, but I didn't know how to do it. I could speak, could warn my intended victim, because although my soul had all but died, there was still a spark that evil hadn't touched. Then, happily for me, you came along. 
I knew you would sense something amiss, and I didn't care. I was almost certain of her love, and I decided to seize the few minutes left me and devil take the hindmost. When you told her to confront me, you gave me the happiest days of my life. For this, I thank you sincerely. For what I have done, I will ask you to do, forgive me. Maria asked me directly, as you had known she would. I replied frankly, sparing her nothing. I told her that the fact that this life had been wished on me, as it were, gave me some rights, and that I could tell her how to rid herself of me if she wished. Then she turned to me, her large, lovely eyes thoughtful. Todd, dearest, she said softly, I must die someday, really die. So what difference does it make when? I only know that I love you. Why wait until I'm decrepit and alone with only a few memories to look back on? Why not now, with you, where life doesn't really stop? With all I've read about this, don't you think I could free myself if I wished? I still wonder if she really believed me. We were married three days later. I never told her what her life with me would be like that one day I would desert her, fearing and hating her rivalry for the very source of my life, and the ghastly chain would continue. I couldn't betray her then and I can't now. On the second night of our marriage, she died, as you know it, in my arms. We were quite alive when you found us. She was in a hypnotic state induced by her condition. She heard and saw nothing, but I knew. And you are the only one who can help me. If you show this to a priest, he will accompany you to the place in Kunigstein where we rest during the morning in a new bed I had specially constructed for us. I couldn't bring Maria to that other bed of corruption. A map of how to get there is enclosed. There you will perform the ancient effective rites and you will lay us to rest together as we wish. That is all I ask. When I had finished reading, I stared at nothing, trying to force myself to think. This was all he asked? In substance, he wished me to murder the girl I loved. I could refuse. I could ignore his request. But I didn't doubt. I believed every word, and I knew I would do as he asked. I no longer hated him so much. Rather, I pitied him, the hapless victim of a horrible chain of circumstance. I found the priest after much searching. Father Kalman was understanding with the wisdom of the very old. Yes, my son, he said, I will go. Many might doubt, but I believe. It was five o'clock in the morning when we approached the mausoleum. The good father explained that the creatures of darkness had to be back in their resting places before the cock crew. At night they drew sustenance. During the morning they slept. There was a gleaming copper casket. We approached it warily. It was nothing but grisly remains, bloodstains, and dust. We drew back, fearfully. Then we saw the other, newer casket in richest mahogany, almost twice the width of the copper box, their bridal bed. They lay together, his arm about her. She wore a gown of palest blue, but oh, that mockery of a gown. Stained it was with fresh blood which had seeped onto it. His mouth was dark, rich with blood, slightly open in a half-smile. His hand pressed her fair head close to his chest. She lay trustingly, 
within the circle of his arm like a small child. The priest crossed himself. The bodies twitched slightly. You know what you must do, Father Kalman whispered. I nodded, the pit of my stomach churning madly. She must not wake again to see that bloodstained gown or to wonder at her husband's gory lips. She should know rest, eternal rest. Father Kalman circled the box several times, ringing his small bell, and at one point laid a crucifix upon each of their chests. Their faces writhed, and I felt my skin creep. Then, chanting in a low, firm voice, the priest gave me the signal. Together, we drove two long stakes dipped first in holy water home, piercing their hearts simultaneously. The bodies leapt forward in the box, straining against the stake, and a horrible, drawn-out wail shattered the stillness of the tomb. The priest dropped to his knees and I clapped my hands over my ears, but the dreadful shriek penetrated. My stomach turned over and I retched. The good father followed suit. Let us finish, my son, the priest said slowly after a time, his face the color of ashes. We must bury these dead that they may sleep in consecrated ground. She lay small and fragile as ever, her face calm, only there was no trace of life now. She was still and white, as only the dead, the truly dead, are. Todd's arm was flung across her chest, as if to protect her. I made myself move the arm, resting her head upon his shoulder where it belonged. Then, as I looked, there was just Maria. Todd was gone, and only a handful of dust lay piled up around the stake. It was enough. I slammed the lid shut. Looking back now, I can see it was all for the best. Rhea was different, apart from other women. A dreamer, a mystic, too easily influenced by the bizarre and unnormal. I, on the other hand, am practical to almost a fault. Had she married me, I may have crushed in her the very thing that drew me to her. In time, she may have grown to hate me. Sometimes, though, when I look at Rhea's picture, it's hard to be practical. She was everything I shall ever want. I had never been to Europe before the summer of 1947. I went to find Maria to marry her. Instead, I found and murdered her, and I will never go back again. This story was written by Victoria Glad. Thank you to Charisma O'Keefe for reading this story. The music used in this episode was composed by Laura Fisher. And a massive thank you to Tech Liminal for sponsoring this podcast. Go to techliminal.com to master the technology you need to run your life. Join the hysteria, find more episodes, and learn more about this podcast at hysteriapod.com.